I'm Dave Mitchell, and I've been around here for a long time, as you can see. Look at me. And so it's great to be able to share together with you from God's Word. You know, if you're a parent, I am a parent, my wife is a parent, we parent together. Being a parent sometimes reveals things about yourself, sort of your default, your operational system. At home when you have kids, uh, when your kids ask you questions and they want to find out something or they want get, to get permission for something, then they, they decide which parent should they go to to determine <laughs> the answer that they really want to hear. And when my girls, when our girls would come to me, I'm all about grace. You know, the dad and his daughters. You just want to help them. Oh, you want to spend the night? Sure. Oh, you want to stay out later? Like, absolutely. You know, no, no, you, you know, hurt your car? That's okay. You know, we'll take care of it. So I'm all about grace. That's my operational system with my girls. Now, joy may be a surprise to you, is more about law. And so if our girls wanted a favorable answer, they're going to come to old dad. And if they want to just hear what the law is, they'll go to joy and then come back to me and appeal to me to overrule the law with grace. Because scripture says we're all living in the era of grace, not law. And so it, in a home, you have those distinctions. The reason I say that is not to give a parenting class this morning, but Jesus is filled with grace upon grace, John tells us. But he is also a God or a man of the law. This morning, we're going to enter into a situation where Jesus is going to begin with grace, and then he's going to nail it with the law. And so I want to prepare you that this is not an easy passage that we're going to look into, and that's why I'm up here this morning. And so in the outline that uh, Eric just referenced is inside your bulletin. I encourage you to use that to follow along. And I want to read this text that we're in this morning. We have been in the book of Mark. Mark was that young guy that was just always kind of hanging around, taking notes. And some of the other gospel writers might have gotten some of their thoughts from Mark when they wrote their gospel as well. And so Mark is observing all these things going on. And he recorded for us this in Mark chapter 9 as we find ourselves. I'm going to read beginning in verse 38, but think about this for a moment. As I read this really fascinating and somewhat troubling text, Jesus is in somebody's home in Capernaum. You see that late earlier in verse 33. So he's sitting in somebody's house there and he begins to question them. So think of Jesus sitting in your living room. And he's got some of his closest followers, his disciples, those that have been walking with him through all kinds of scenarios. And they're listening to him. So Jesus is going to give us, actually Mark is recording for us this very intimate setting of Jesus in a home talking privately with his disciples. These are not things that he preached to the masses. This is what he shared with those that were the most dedicated to him. So keep that in mind as we go through that. Because this is not the setting that Jesus said these things in, in a big room like this. So here we go. In John 9.38 it says, And John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not hinder him. For there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. 
For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink, because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones to believe, who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if, with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. Are you as troubled as I am about that? Is it, whoa, hey, Jesus, uh, love and grace, uh, can't we all just get along? And then he goes on to say something else here in verse 43, and I need a prop. This is what we need for application today. <laughs> Keep this in mind as I read verse 43. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. I will be at the prayer points after <laughs> the message. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire. I'm going to skip 44 because that wasn't the original text that some of you have in the brackets. I'm going to go to 45. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell. And again, 46 was not in the original text, so I'm going to move to 47. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell. And now we come to the quote that Jesus uses from Isaiah. Where their worms, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Tough. It's a tough passage. Let me break it down and help us to understand at least my understanding of this text. And I think it's all about growing up. Jesus wants us to grow as followers of his, and he wants those that we know to be followers of his as well. I'm going to invite the uh, folks in the sound booth to forward the slide. Some reason I'm not forwarding it from up here. So can you just uh, punch forward? <laughs> Go. All right. All right. Okay. Very good. I'm going to, okay, I'll see if it works. The first thing I want us to understand is that Jesus identifies a problem. There's a problem here the disciples are talking about here, and it's found in verse 38. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him from, uh, because he is not following us. And so what John does, he looks like I'm just this dedicated guy. I see someone over there casting out demons. He's not one of us. And so therefore, we try to shut him down because he's got to do it my way or our way or he gets out of the way because I'm not interested in his action. So John looks like he's somebody big shot. Putting down those that aren't really following Jesus like they're following Jesus. And what Jesus does is take this as an opportunity to teach them in this setting, in the living room of somebody's home in Capernaum. And what it does is it reveals a deeper issue of the heart. Because he goes on to talk about this whole situation. And so if we can advance the slides, there we go. One at a time, we'll get through this together. It's an unfair judgmental attitude that he's talking about here. This is the kind of thing that Jesus is getting all over them because it reflects a heart of pride. 
When they gathered together, the first thing that Jesus asked him, what were you talking about on the road in that home in Capernaum? And he says, you were talking about things about who is the greatest in the kingdom, who is the greatest, the follower of mine. An unfair critical attitude against someone else that I want to shut down often is rooted in pride because we're not doing it the way I want them to do it. An unfair attitude like this reveals this this, uh, failure to align myself with the teachings of Jesus. Let me show you the, the breakdown. We can put the next one up here. Notice in Mark 9 the things that Mark lists about the failure of these disciples to really get it. I just want to emphasize, there's so much about what Jesus says that we just don't understand. There's a lot about what Jesus does we don't understand. But we have to align with his teaching no matter what. At the beginning of the chapter, we saw the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus revealed the glory of who God is. And they didn't know what to do with that. I wouldn't have known what to do with that. They didn't know how to answer. In verse 10, they didn't know what it meant to be rising from the dead. I'm not sure I would have better insights, but they were confused about what Jesus is doing and saying. In verses 18 and 19 in the same chapter, they couldn't cast out this demon. And then Jesus gets on their case and says, man, you unbelieving generation. That's not exactly grace. That's like uh, coming down with a law and order. Next slide, we see that in verse 32, they did not understand the core mission of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. He says, this is what I'm come to do, to die, to be buried, to be rise again. And they were lost on that message. They didn't get the gospel. And yet that was Jesus trying to give the core message of why he came. In verse 34, they are more concerned about their own greatness than the mission of Jesus Christ. And that's where he sits in the room and says, what were you talking about? You were talking about who's the greatest. And then finally, therefore, what happens is they begin to unfairly rebuke a man that Jesus says, I don't want you to rebuke him, thank you very much. And he says, I don't want you to treat somebody like that who is not following the way you think we should have him follow us. And so there's this attitude that sometimes we get that I know the best way for everyone around me. And if you don't do it the way I think you should do it, I think you should be shut down. And this is a dangerous place to live. And Jesus says, look, this guy's casting out demons in my name, and so I'm not going to worry about it. He's doing things under my power. He couldn't do it if it wasn't for my power. So don't be so exclusive. And so there's a dangerous element here. And I was going to really drill down in this whole failure to really criticize in a healthy way. But I think it's going to something even deeper than that. And it is this. Jesus is not helping us to understand how we shouldn't criticize people who don't follow him the way we follow him. Jesus, I think, is trying to get to a deeper issue that is underneath the the heart issue. It's, It's their pride. It's their greatness. It's their failure to understand the greater mission. It's all that Jesus has been doing in Mark 9 that there was lost on them. Resurrection. Death, burial, and resurrection. I don't understand it. I don't get it. It's not something that I get in my brain, so therefore I'm just going to go attack someone else. I don't get what Jesus is doing. So what Jesus wants is this. He wants us to refocus on his mission, whether it's great or small. So then he says this to them about John and criticizing this man. For he who is not against us is for us. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his power. Jesus is not preaching that we should go out and pass out bottles of water. But he is simply saying that I want you to go out there and serve others. Remember why we're here. And know that there are some people who are against me. And there are some people who are for me. 
And so his key element that I want to drill down on is this. For he who is not against us is for us. With Jesus, there's no neutrality. There's no sort of in-between. I'm sort of a follower. No. If you're sort of a follower, you're not a follower. You're either in, you're out. There's no gray zone with Jesus. I want you on board or you're not part of my followership. Now, I'm going to do something a little risky. I want to pull up a woman who has written a book called Love Thy Body. I'm going to show you some of the things that she says. We are living in an era where many of us are very troubled about the way a lot of women have been treated. You see from Hollywood moguls, from TV stars, you see it in politicians, you see it all around. We, we even see pastors who have sexually harassed members of their congregation. One of the biggest churches in America out of Chicago, that pastor that we used to look to with such honor and respect has now been accused of such serious crimes of sexual abuse and sexual harassment and, and the whole sexual promiscuity. It's huge today. We, if you just read any newspaper, any headlines, anything on Facebook, it's just all around us. I want to go into that realm with a little fear and trepidation, but I have a larger point I want to make. Listen to what Nancy Piercy of Love Thy Book says. A so society's view of sex reflects its deeper commitments. The sexual liberation ethic stems from an underlying idea that the world is a product of blind material forces. We just sort of happened on a seashore somewhere and amazingly just became a human being. There is no divine action behind that. A New Yorker article put it this way, nature is without conscious design. The emergence of the homo sapiens was without meaning or telos or purpose. We have no purpose. We're just masses of flesh. Amazingly, we do what we do. The outlook is deeply dehumanizing. No wonder many people keep grabbing at more and more extreme sexual experiences while finding less genuine fulfillment. And no wonder those with power feel entitled to use other people for their own gratification. That's a huge issue. Bill Cosby, America's dad, is in jail. Unbelievable. But we think we have this right for this personal gratification. What kind of cosmos do we live in? Are we products of blind material forces? Or does the natural world reflect some kind of purpose and behind it, a person, capital P, Jesus, he's a believer, who loves us and has a purpose for our lives. The society's worldview ultimately determines whether it treats the human body as just another piece of matter or whether it grants the body value and dignity imbuing sexual relations with the depth and significance we all long for. What Jesus is talking about I'm now extrapolating from that in a bigger picture. Depending upon what your vision and mission of following Jesus Christ looks like determines all the way to such things that we have been reading about in the papers this last few years. Because how I determine who I am 
and why I've been created, my biblical worldview determines how I become a follower of Jesus and how I live that out with other people. For my own personal gratification or in selfless serving like giving cups of water to those in need. That's just a small picture, but the larger picture is to serve others. We need to have that biblical worldview as to why we were created, where we came from, created by God, Adam and Eve, have a design and a purpose, and that God has given to us his image. We live out that image, and then with that biblical worldview of that setting, then it spreads because we as followers of Jesus realign ourselves with the mission of who Jesus is. It's a failure to align ourselves and see the bigger picture that causes us to see the small picture like John picking on this guy who's casting out demons, but he didn't do it the way I want him to do it. It's to lose the larger picture of what God is doing. That is why we teach the Word of God verse by verse at Calvary Church. That is why we have Calvary Christian School and Preschool so students who come on our campus every day have an opportunity to hear a biblical worldview as to who they are in Christ and their identity in Jesus Christ so that they live out that identity as followers of Jesus Christ and keep his mission before them and not the inculcation that comes from the, oh, the world's view that says you're nothing but a piece of flesh and it doesn't matter how you fulfill and gratify those desires. See the bigger picture? I hope it makes sense. Don't get lost on some of the particulars we hear about lately. But see the larger view. And this is where Jesus is calling us. As he sits in that little intimate living room and speaks to his disciples. And says, men, I want you to be on my side and follow me. So Jesus then warns us. He says, I mean this. I'm serious about this. As he really now gets into the very hard thing for us to hear. He warns against any kind of obstacle to a growing faith. I don't want you to be a stumbling block to someone else, and I don't want you to be sort of stale and stagnant in your own spiritual growth as well. So then he says this to his disciples. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones, when he says little ones, you go back to verse 37. He's talking about little children. He's sitting in the living room talking about little children. I don't want you to stumble any of them. I don't want you to offend anyone who wants to believe, who wants to grow. It would be better for him if he, with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. And they know what he's talking about. The millstone is this. This is what he's referring to right here, where a donkey would pull that thing around to crush the grain. And he says, what you probably should be fearful of is this. You put that same millstone around the man's neck and cast him in the sea. And these disciples were not unfamiliar with drowning as an execution. So if you're sitting there, you're listening to Jesus, and you just invited your friend, hey, you ought to come hear Jesus. He's really good. <laughs> How would you feel as Jesus says, you know, you should have a millstone around your neck, and I should throw you in the depths of the sea. You know, if I'm John, I'm going to say, hey, Jesus, you know, we're, we're not going to attract a crowd with talk like that. Who wants to follow you? And you talk so harsh. But remember, he's talking to those who should be the truest, most dedicated followers of his in a private setting in someone's living room, such as it was in Capernaum. But we are eavesdropping. And he's letting us know that we need to be all about his cause. 
failure here can cause great harm. Stumble, it says, it's put to trap someone, falls into it, and falls away. I don't want to do anything in my life or my faith journey that would cause someone else to not grow or be stumbled and be a failure in their spiritual journey of life. We've seen enough of that. There are pastors who sadly have done these things, and yet that stumbling block is there. So he calls us, therefore, to cut out anything that causes harm to the mission. Just cut it out. Just stop. Just use, use what power you have available to you to cut out those things. And he says, I don't want you to be cast into hell, but it's better for you to go to hell with one foot than to have two feet than to have one foot. Now, when he talks about hell, he's talking about Gehenna. If you go to Israel, this is Gehenna. This is out right outside of Jerusalem. And Gehenna is the Hebrew of Gehenna, Valley of Hinnom. It's a place where there was all kinds of... Uh, of uh, 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 idolatry, pagan practices. It became a place of punishment, a disposal of the garbage and the junk, and there was fires that would burn to burn up the, the excess so that the smell would not be so bad. He says, I, I, I am warning you that there is a hell, and I'm warning you that you should not do anything that will allow you to be ending up there. In those ancient days, this was an artist's rendering of Gehenna, where they would actually sacrifice babies in this valley of Hinnom, it's Gehenna, awful. And this is what Jesus is talking about here when he talks to them. He says to them that uh, in verse 43, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter crippled than having your two hands to go into hell, into Gehenna, into this place, in an unquenchable fire that never stops. Jesus believes in hell. Jesus believes in sin. Jesus believes get rid of the sin because you want to get rid of the hell. You don't want to go there. That's harsh. And when I read that, it should create this healthy, not, not this anxiety-ridden fear, but this healthy fear that, yes, Lord, that's not where I want to live my life. I want to cut off anything, whatever I do, my feet, wherever I go, throw out my eyes, whatever I think, whatever I see, whatever aspect of my life that is entering into a world that is inconsistent with being a follower of Jesus Christ, I want that out of me. The last thing I ever want to have to do is to fear going to hell in a terrible way because I didn't know what it really meant to believe in Jesus and live that life faithfully. This is tough stuff. And uh, I want to get specific. I was thinking about this. What are some of those things that I need to be mindful of in my own life? And maybe for some of us, here are some things that I think they aren't the Ten Commandments and aren't lists and sins somewhere, but they're these subtle things that we can get ourselves into and yet not identify in us that need to be cut out. Here's some things that I thought about. Things that would turn someone from believing in Jesus. A pastor that fails and causes people to turn from God. A moral failure of a pastor. A parent that damages his child's faith through abuse, wrong, or harsh discipline, a neighbor that is rude, harsh, judgmental, hateful, that turns the neighbor from faith in Jesus Christ, a boss, a teacher that creates an atmosphere of hostility, judgment, or criticism, a church leader that does not serve in humility but in pride turns other people away from their faith, a church member that criticizes a church leader in a harsh, judgmental way to offend or condemn. An older Christian judging a younger Christian based on their dress or tattoos or piercings or skinny jeans. 
I'm a little embarrassed I even have to put that in there, but I have to. A younger Christian judging an older one for being out of touch, unaware of technology, biased comments against certain people, a judgment against another person based on skin color, age, gender, or socioeconomic status. These are those subtle things that my hands, my feet, my eyes may indulge in, but I try to look for scripture and verse, well, I don't see it, but they are there. Then I put on the back of the outline, belief systems. You know, there's a lot of gods in the days that Jesus lived, many gods, many choices of gods. We don't have gods the way Jesus had to confront gods in those days, but we do have belief systems that are alternative religions to the belief system of being a follower of Jesus. So I've listed some of those belief systems on the back side of your outline. There is materialism. Materialism is a belief system. It's a religion. It's where I trust in my possessions for value, security, importance. I do not give to ministries in proportion to what God has given to me. That's materialism. It's a religion. Hypocrisy. I present myself as a good Christian, but do not reflect the holiness, love, and grace of Jesus in my business, school, relationships, and private life. Legalism. I work hard to gain favor with God and judge other people that do not live as I do, like John at the de- man being casting out the demons. It's a performance-based faith where love is earned. I will love you if you live the way I want you to. Narcissism. I deserve to be happy and comfortable and do not care what you think. Meet my needs and desires or I will leave you. I see myself as more important than others. Relativism. God's truth is subjective and not absolute. I would determine what feels right and what is true for me and base my life on that. My truth may not be your truth, but that's okay. We can have two completely opposite points of truth. Hedonism. My private life is no one's business with a pornography living together outside of marriage or sexual promiscuity. I have the right to pursue whatever makes me feel good. Conditionalism. I will forgive you. I will love you if you behave the the way I want to. I won't forgive you until you do what I want you to do. I won't love you until you do what I want you to do. And so I want to gain something by this. So I hold that as leverage over someone's head. Now, these are tough things. These are the things that are sort of in that gray area that we may not be able to find in the Ten Commandments, but they are there. They are a mindset. It is a belief system. It is who I am following. It is what I am following. It is the way I'm living my life. It is the basis of how I operate, how I give, how I relate to other people. It becomes a whole system of how I conduct myself to people and situations in the church and outside the church. It is this that I believe that Jesus is trying to help us to understand. So he brings up very specific little incident here of John questioning this man who's casting out the demon, so give him a cup of water. It's something bigger than that. It's a system of how they have broken down all throughout chapter 9. They just didn't get the message of what Jesus is doing. His death, burial, his resurrection, the, the transfiguration, that is so lost on them. I don't want it to be lost on us that Jesus has a mission. He calls us to be his followers in that mission, that we would fulfill it, and that we would not do anything that would stumble those because we have a belief system or we have a behavior that is so corrosive to people around us. And it damages the greater calling of Jesus Christ. So here's what Jesus says for us to do. So call upon him. Go to him. Find that purity. Find that peace. Here's a hard verse. For everyone will be salted with fire. What does that mean? There's all kinds of meanings. Let me tell you what I think it means. 
In Leviticus chapter 2, the priest would take salt and throw it on the sacrificial fire. It would be part of the sacrifice of gaining atonement or forgiveness, cleansing. Salt is a purifying effect. Salt is a preservative. So you take that salt, you cast it on the fire, and the idea is to go to the sacrifice, go to the sacrifice, and let that sacrifice be satisfying to God. And then secondly, he says this, we are called to peace with one another, how we live our lives to one another. He says in that last verse, have salt in yourself, have that purifying preservative that is attractive, like salt and light, he says earlier in Matthew. Be that way and then find peace with one another. I want you to live your lives in a way that makes the community say, wow, this is what I'm looking for. This is a higher calling. This is a deeper significance of who I am and how I live my life. Don't let me get off on the petty stuff like John ridiculing a man casting out demons in Jesus' name. Don't let me get into that kind of that critical attitude where I can't see the larger view of who Jesus is and his greater mission and his biblical worldview and the calling that I should have to be his follower. Be that person who follows Jesus. Grow up. Grow up. And don't do anything that hurts those that might stumble if I don't live the life the way I should. That's God's calling for us. Now we have a choice. I have this axe. You know, some people think, well, it's, I got to cut off the hand, I got to cut off the foot, and Jesus didn't mean that literally. But there is sort of a metaphor to that, that some of us think the only way to get rid of sin, the only way to get rid of these attitudes, the only way to get rid of these false belief systems, if I just work harder, if I do it myself. It's like cutting off my hand with an axe, and so therefore my hand would never steal another donut from Dunkin' Donuts. You know, silly. Well, I can do it that way, but I still have another hand. It's futile. think that you can achieve this purity and this peace. So Jesus says, as he said earlier in Mark 9, I've come to die, to be buried, to rise again. And that becomes the purity, the holiness of God, as I believe in him and ask for his forgiveness. This is the beauty that a lot of us already know, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's salt on the fire, the sacrifice of Jesus, purifying my heart, that realigns me with his mission, that once again regains footing as a follower of Jesus. Jesus invites us into that moment. And I give us an opportunity to reflect. I'd like for us to spend some time quietly thinking about these things, we're going to have communion as we do at the various stations each week. I encourage you to come get the cup and the bread. They symbolize the sacrifice of Jesus. As you take that cup, as you eat that bread, remember that it was Jesus' sacrifice, his death, burial, and resurrection on that cross. That is the salt that purifies me. 
the fire of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross gives to me the purity, helps me to gain the peace with other people. But before we come up and take of the elements, I'd like for each of us to spend a few quiet moments on our own, maybe looking at some of the things that are listed on the back, maybe looking at your own personal life. God, is there anything that needs to be cut out and says to God, I don't want to have to cut it off myself, Father. I want you to cut it out of my life through Jesus Christ. He wants to send away all that sin. He wants to cut it out for us so we don't have to cut it off by ourselves. And that's the beauty of what Jesus gives to us throughout the entire chapter of Mark 9. That's the message. I have come to do this for you if you will just call upon me and then follow me and live according to the mission that I've called all of my followers to do. So as the music is played, some scriptures will be on the scene. Reflect on these things. Then after a few moments, we'll come and receive the communion to remember the death, burial, and sacrifice of Jesus Christ.